this morning, I want to discuss a phenomenon in church history that many call Christian monasticism, Christian monasticism. This was the practice that developed early in the history of the church in which some professing Christians chose to live secluded, isolated, even austere lives where they would literally withdraw from society and the culture they were in and abstain from several things. And in their solitude and seclusion, they would dedicate themselves to disciplines like Bible study and prayer and worship. Those who practiced this lifestyle said it was based First of all, on Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 48, where the Lord said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, the manner of trying to reach that perfection by those ones who practice monasticism, the method of reaching the perfection was through self-renunciation that is evidenced in separation the choice of poverty and chastity and obedience to the law of God. In addition, those practicing this monastic lifestyle said it was inspired by what they called the desert theology of the Old Testament. In other words, they looked at the 40 years of wandering on the part of the Israelites, the wandering in the desert, as being meant by God to bring about a change in his people. So they took that and said that that's where that can happen best, in the desert. They also said they drew inspiration from examples in the Old Testament, like Elijah in the New Testament, John the Baptist, both of whom lived alone in the desert for a while. Plus, they say they drew inspiration from Jesus himself, his time of solitary struggle with Satan in the desert, the wilderness. Well, this idea of monasticism, Christian monasticism, has varied greatly in its different external forms through the centuries, but broadly speaking, it falls into two types. So one is what I've been discussing. We can just call it individual seclusion. That's the form I have just mentioned where they practice an extreme level of isolation from society. Those who were were in this group sometimes have also been called hermits. Anthony the Great is considered the founder of this form of individual seclusion, this form of monasticism. He launched the movement that attracted followers that eventually became known, these groups, these followers became known as the Desert Fathers. Some called them the Desert Monks sometime around A.D. 270. It started in Anthony's mind when he heard a a sermon one Sunday stating that perfection is required by God, but stating that perfection could be achieved by selling all of one's possessions, giving all the proceeds to the poor, and then following Jesus. Well, Anthony took that advice and even made the further step, though, of moving deep into the desert away from people to seek literal, complete solitude. might be interested to know that Anthony lived in a time of history where there was persecution of Christians, so the solitude of the desert, the austerity of the desert was even seen as protection 
against martyrdom as a safety net, if you will. Where over time, the model of Anthony and other hermits attracted many followers. Many were eager to live their lives this way. Many were attracted to this whole idea of solidarity and separation from material goods. So they chose to live a life of extreme asceticism, renouncing all the pleasures of the body, the pleasures of the senses, renouncing rich food, renouncing too much rest. They even renounced bathing, in case you were thinking about joining. They renounced anything that made them comfortable. And they focused all their energies out there in the desert, alone. They posted they focused their energies on praying and singing psalms and fasting and preserving love and harmony with one another, all the while trying to, to, to keep their thoughts on God alone and to focus their desires on God alone. It was mostly men, but also a handful of women participated in this individual seclusion. By the time of Anthony's death, that was around 356 A.D., there were literally thousands who had been drawn to living in the desert that way. And in addition to the ones living there, a a large number of seekers would come and go just to seek advice and counsel from those desert fathers that were living out there, individual seclusion. A second form we could call community seclusion. That's the form of monasticism maybe we're more likely familiar with. Not people living so much in in solidarity in the desert, but communities of people living a monastic life together. The men are known by the term monks, the women nuns. They live in communities, monasteries, to further their ability to observe this strict ascetic life. Well, regardless of the form, there are some problems with this approach to the Christian life For one thing, Christianity is not the only religion that has hermits or ascetics. Other religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Taoism, they have examples of hermits that do that and live an ascetic way of life. I mention that just to make the point that even totally pagan religions practice this. But second, and even more important, Scripture never prescribes this as a way of dealing with personal sin. Scripture never prescribes this as a way of combating temptation. Nor does it ever prescribe it as a way of dealing with all the evil and the dangers associated with the world and the culture around us. So what does the Bible say about the world and our relationship to the world? Well, to answer that, we can once again turn to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, the chapter we are studying here for several Sunday mornings. As we saw last time, and the time before that, and the time before that, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus was with his 11 faithful disciples, in other words, minus Judas, and they were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus stopped and began to pray aloud to the Father. He prayed first for himself, and then he began praying for those 11 men who were with him, and they heard him 
pray. More specifically, starting in verse 6, all the way through verse 19, Jesus made two requests to the Father on behalf of those 11 men. Now, we began to look at the first request last week. Number one, we'll review it for a moment. Number one, a request for protection. And as I mentioned, that request is broken down in the prayer into four types of of protection that Jesus was most concerned about. We saw, first of all, it was a prayer for protection from straying, verse 11. In other words, Jesus prayed that those men would be kept, he said, in the Father's name. And since the name represents all that's true about someone's character and his ways, to be kept in God's name ultimately means to be kept loyal to the truth about who he is. Therefore, it really was a prayer that these men would be kept from going astray, theologically. Next, we saw in verse 11 that this prayer for protection, this request for protection included, second, a protection from disunity. Protection from disunity. Jesus prayed that these men would continue to be one just as the Son and the Father are one, Jesus said. So this is therefore a reference to the organic unity, I called it, the organic unity that these 11 men did have with one another. A unity that that ought to keep them loving one another so that they could go out and fulfill the gospel mission to which they were appointed. Of course, that statement by Jesus about the importance of unity is connected to the prayer that they would be kept in God's name. They go together. In other words, ultimately, they would be able to partner together only if there was agreement on the core doctrines, especially when it comes to what the gospel is. Third, this request for protection included a request for protection from despair. Verse 13, protection from despair. That would be a great need of these 11 men. I mean, once Jesus was gone and once they went out into the world, they began to aggressively stand for the truth together and aggressively proclaim the gospel together. They were going to find much opposition in the world. They were going to even experience persecution. And therefore, they they might be discouraged in all of that and, and maybe even be tempted to give up. And Jesus knew that. So he prayed that the Father would so protect them that they would experience Jesus' own joy and, a, and full joy instead of slipping into despair. So you get back and look at those, those three needs, protection from going astray, protection from disunity, and protection from despair. They all go together. And these 11 men would definitely need help in all these areas. And of course, these are the great needs of ministers of the gospel today. We still have these needs. In fact, these are the great needs all believers have. We all face the danger in this world in which we live of straying from the truth. Why? Because there's false teachers all around us and false interpretations of things. We live in a world where we don't have to wait for all of that to come our way through some letter that might take months and months to be delivered. No, it's with a click of a button, with a swipe. We just put in our earbuds or listen and we're bombarded 
with false views, false interpretations, false conclusions, false teachers. So we still need God's protection from that. We still face the danger of disunity, both globally and certainly locally in the congregation. But yet all true believers do share an organic unity, which at the very least means that whether we all agree with one another on every nuance of theology or not, all believers must be loving toward one another. And beyond that, there is this necessary spirit of unity that we must at least strive to make evident as we all pursue the fulfillment of our mission in the world, which means our proclamation of the true gospel. And third, we still face the danger of becoming weary in all this, weary in doing what is right. And thus, there is that that danger of of losing hope and, and slipping into despair. So we need help in experiencing the full joy of the Lord as we serve Him in this fallen world. So a request for protection which includes protection from straying and protection from disunity and protection from despair. Well, today we move on to see the fourth type of protection that's included here. When Jesus was praying on behalf of those 11 men, a a fourth one that is still connected to the other three, they all work together. And once again, what we find here is a great need of all believers, not just the 11. Fourth, protection from worldliness. Protection from worldliness. Verses 14 through 16. Now we get back to all I said about monasticism and why I brought it up today. Our text today confirms that it is not at all a biblical perspective for his ministers, nor for any Christian, to seek escape from the world. Instead, Jesus' perspective is that his servants are to remain in the world, yet while at the same time not becoming worldly. Now let's see how Jesus demonstrates that reality and how he prayed for those men to be protected in this way. He begins by saying this, verse 14, I have given them your word. In other words, Jesus knew that he had faithfully and consistently given those men the truth of the revelation of God, what he calls your word. Now, stop there for a moment. Let's remind ourselves that we saw at the very beginning of this gospel, the gospel of John, that Jesus himself is the word. He is the message about God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So first of all, Jesus himself is the Word, and he had faithfully given himself to these men, but he had as well faithfully proclaimed the Word and all that he had taught those men. And they had received it. They had believed his word. That's confirmed back in verse 8. You can look at that. Jesus said, for the words which you gave me, Father, I've given to them. And they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. So the truth they had received and the truth that they did understand, they did accept and believe. Let me just say, that's still true today. Genuine believers 
are those who have had their hearts opened to believe and embrace Christ, the living word, and in believing and submitting to his truth, the written word, which for us is the scriptures. Well, what was the result of that for these 11 men? The result of them believing and obeying the truth? I mean, even though they were not perfect in it, verse 14 continues, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We've seen this before in John, that the world refers to the world system that is under the control of of Satan, it's opposed to God and his truth, that world hated these disciples because these men were no longer of the world themselves, just as Jesus was not of the world. Of course, Jesus had never been of the world. He is the eternal Son of God. He existed in eternity as a member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, but he had entered the world. He did that at the incarnation. He took on human nature, was born of the Virgin Mary. But the disciples had been part of the world. That's all they had known. Yet, Jesus had chosen them out of it, out of the world. He had rescued them. And because of that divine choice, they had crossed, we could say, this line. And there was no going back. A spiritual line. A spiritual line of demarcation. You see, Scripture says that all true believers have experienced that. They have been taken out of one domain, the domain of the world. They have been placed in another domain, another realm. Paul says in Colossians 1, it's the kingdom of of God's dear Son. And he also goes on to say in Philippians 3.20 that that now they're citizens of of a different world, citizens of a different country, a heavenly country. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is not here anymore. Our citizenship is in heaven. No wonder Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. And this is why those 11 men would end up infuriating the world. Once they were sent out and began to faithfully preach the gospel, they would infuriate the world because the world only loves its own. The world loves and accepts those who line up with its principles, those who who agree with its priorities and its, its agendas, its viewpoints, its perspectives. These disciples, though, by becoming followers of Christ, They were no longer aligned with the world. Instead, they were aligned with God and His truth. And therefore, the world saw itself condemned by these men, which is what they sense from all. All who embrace the truth because the truth ends up exposing the world's evil. Listen once again to John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. The light has come into the world, Jesus said, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's why the world doesn't like the truth. It exposes the truth about the world. There's fear there. Interesting, you can see a 
an example of that in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, this fear of the truth. You see it in Herod and his fear of John the Baptist because John the Baptist was faithful in proclaiming the truth. Here's Mark 6, 20. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous man and a holy man. So Jesus knew that this is exactly what would happen when these 11 men began to boldly proclaim the gospel after he had gone. The values they had received from God, they were going to proclaim those values. And that proclamation of those values was going to be a threat to the world, a reproach to the world. The the, the truth does that. It it presents a, a way of life to the world that's contrary to what the world prioritizes. It proclaims a message that that has to do with a totally different definition of of something like happiness than what the world has. Truth even goes so far as to proclaim that there is a God and there is a such thing as accountability to God and the certainty of judgment to come. And the Word of God demands that it be the final authority on all that it addresses including the final authority on morality, and that is a concept the world is outraged against. So still today, the world does not want to be bothered with God's truth, and even less does it want to be transformed by God's truth. I love the way D.A. Carson puts this animosity. He says, when believers take a stand on truth, the world ends up in a savage rage. We see that in our world. Now, Jesus had already warned the disciples of this reality in his farewell sermon on that last night, John 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So that's the reality that all God's people can expect, if we're going to be faithful to the Lord, if we're going to proclaim truth, we can expect the hatred of the world. But even that was not the concern on Jesus' heart. The hatred of the world is not really the biggest concern. It's not the most serious threat. The most serious threat is that the Lord's followers would end up being morally and spiritually corrupted by the world. And that is why now, on that night, in their hearing, Jesus brought that matter to the Father in prayer. Believers need God's intervening protection to help them avoid assimilation into the world system. We need God's help to avoid being influenced by it. But notice how Jesus prayed about that threat, verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I mean, we might think that that would be his prayer. God, spare them from all this. Just bring them home. He didn't pray for that. He prayed that the Father would keep them from it. He says, keep them from the evil one. In other words, this connects again with what I discussed in the introduction, this idea of monasticism, where professing believers seek to escape from the world. Jesus didn't ask for that, that the Father would help them escape. He prayed the Father would protect them from the world's corrupting power while they stayed engaged with and in the world. 
Jesus knew that was one of their greatest needs. And you see why? He knew what the power is that's behind the world system. He confirms here that there is this living being, the one he calls the evil one, that's behind it all. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, he was there that night. He heard all that, and he came through the years to understand it very clearly, so much so that he, he mentions the same thing in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In both places, that is obviously a reference to Satan. He's behind the world system. He's therefore behind the world's hatred of the truth, and therefore he's behind the world's hatred of all those who proclaim the truth. He is behind the efforts in the world to corrupt believers. He's behind the efforts to corrupt the church by infusing it with worldly thinking and worldly values so that we end up being assimilated into the world's evil ways. Richard Phillips, someone I quote from time to time, summarizes well what the evidences are of this assimilation. I'll just summarize his summary for you. Phillips says, one is this. It's when when Christians are led into the materialism of the worldly culture. That's part of the temptation. Materialism. We can be corrupted by that, which means becoming enamored with money and possessions and earthly success with Little concern for faithfulness to the Bible and reverence for God and living a holy life. Sadly, the prosperity gospel, as it's called, that false movement comes to mind in this regard. It's this false gospel that even proclaims that material wealth and success here, that that's the chief benefit of coming to Christ and being saved. Sad. That's spread all over the world. Even in third world countries, people going and preaching the so-called prosperity gospel. That's the corruption of the world, the influence of the world, the evidence of it. Phillips mentions another one. There is the relativism that has caused so many professing Christians to compromise on biblical doctrines. The world has different views on things and different definitions, and those encroach into our thinking, and so we fall into this trap of relativism. There's the sensualism, he writes, of Hollywood-style entertainment that encroaches in the church and has taken over many churches in the place of biblical worship. There's the humanism of secular scholarship that, that takes the Bible and analyzes it and ends up denying the Bible's final authority, inerrancy, inspiration, this scholarship that denies the Bible's teaching, therefore, on creation, how the world got here. Scholarship that denies the the teaching on on gender, that's going on in our world. Scholarship that denies the Scripture's teaching on sexuality and morality and more. And finally, Philip says, and then there's consumerism, that many churches have imported in from the secular advertising world as a way to grow the church. Phillips is right in all that. And Jesus says, it's Satan who's behind it all. And he's still the one behind all this potential compromise with the world. And yet, as serious as that is, the answer was not for the disciples to escape out of the world and become hermits. To go live in the desert or the mountains. 
or, or to find a Christian subdivision or to form a Christian apartment complex or locate a Christian cul-de-sac to move to. That's never been God's answer. Instead, Jesus understands that those men needed to live in the world, and that is true of us today as well. That does rule out, then, the individual seclusion of going to live in the desert. It rules out the monasteries. It even stands against the, the separation sort of mindset of some communities like the Amish. It rules out the tendency that many Christians have to, to only seek out and hang around with believers at work or believers in the neighborhood or anywhere else. Don't get me wrong. Christians need fellowship with one another. We need support from one another. I mean, believe me, the church is, provides that. It's the greatest support group in the world, but we're not to escape from the world. We're not to avoid all contact with the world. We're not to be guilty of what some are guilty of, just running from one Christian event to the next, one Christian context to the next, so that we can just avoid ever making eye contact or brushing elbows with unbelievers. That is just not the biblical way. The biblical perspective is staying in the world, interacting with it, and engaging worldly people in love with the truth. I can't help but think of Paul's correction to the thinking of the Corinthians. I want you to turn to this. Many times I just throw out cross-references, but hold your place there in John. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, about three books to the right. Scroll down three books. I mean, however you're doing it. I'm very high-tech, you know, in my understanding of things. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians to not associate with worldly and moral people. But they misunderstood what he meant. So here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. You know what he's talking about there? It's a result of disciplining someone out of the church, according to Matthew 18 or Titus 3. What our relationship is to be with this professing Christian who's living a worldly lifestyle. He goes on to say, verse 12, what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my role. It's not our role. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? Oh, God judges them. His point is, oh, make relationships with them. I mean, have them over for dinner. Paul understood that we must interact with the world, which is what Jesus had already articulated. Listen, Jesus not only did not teach escapism, he didn't leave it there. He said he actually sends his servants into the world. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Later on in this prayer, verse 18 of John 17. Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He repeats it differently in Acts 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses, 
both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, that is our mission. Our mission has to do with being in the world, going into the world, interacting with worldly people so that we have opportunities to proclaim the truth to them. And yet, as we go into the world, there's a danger. We are not to be influenced by it. What a great challenge all of this is, to live this out, which is why Jesus prayed that those 11 men would be kept protected by the Father from the ways of the world and from the, from the evil one. And that is one of our greatest needs still today, this protection from worldliness, individually and as a church. Well, in verse 16, the Lord just repeats the bottom line. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's not making a statement of what should be. He's saying what actually is. Christians really are distinct from the world, as is the Lord. We can't be anything else but that, besides that. We don't desire anything else besides that. So protection Request for protection, protection from straying, from disunity, from despair, from worldliness. And that request for protection is the first of two requests that Jesus made for his disciples. And we're going to look at the next one, begin to delve into it next week. For today, though, let's just confirm the main, major, clear takeaway from this part of Jesus' prayer. Believers are neither to withdraw from the world and seek the safety of disengagement from it, nor are we to allow ourselves to become so indistinguishable from it that we've compromised with it. Neither extreme is an option for us. We must not shrink back from our mission, and yet we cannot give in to worldly pressure. We are to live in the world, Engaging with the world, and yet avoid the world's corrupting influence. Let's flesh that out a little bit more, the obvious things. And there's too many things to comment on in a sermon. I mean, you could preach volumes on this. But avoiding the world's corrupting influence certainly starts with not embracing, I mean, being on guard and not embracing the world's perspectives on so many subjects. And I've mentioned some of those. I mentioned them again. Subjects like sexuality. Subjects like gender. We, we are salmon swimming upstream on these issues today. The world's perspectives about marriage. The world's perspectives about parenting. The world's perspectives about handling money and finances and leadership. And the categories go on and on and on and on. Be on guard against those perspectives. The world has a perspective of what truth is, and it's not the Bible. It doesn't see the Bible as, as the final authority. It rejects that, and therefore, that's why it rejects the Bible's account of creation. That's why it rejects the Bible's view on morality. There are Christians today, though, professing to be followers of Christ and living immoral lives and having no conviction over it. They take great joy in drinking the right kind of free trade coffee, and then they Sleep with their girlfriend. I've talked to some. We, we, we must see that the Bible, the Bible's view of gender, 
and roles and so on as what is true and right, even though the world rejects it. We, we, can't, we can't give in to the world's priorities. But what it says is, is important here in this world. Why are priorities so important? Think about it. Priorities are what determine agendas for your own life and for us as a church corporately. The world's priorities are all wrong. Therefore, its agendas are all wrong. The things it focuses on are the things of this world only. I mean, it's about, we've got to go about finding world peace somehow. Or it's getting caught up into ecological concerns so that we, we save the planet, that that's so crucial. We've got to solve the energy crisis, or we've got to solve the problem of homelessness, or world hunger, and Again, the list goes on and on. I'm not saying that some of those issues are unimportant. I'm saying they're just not the most important. The world says they are. Because this is all the world knows. The world. We're from another kingdom. Another world. Our citizenship is not here. So by saying no to the world's priorities, then we are rejecting the world's agendas. At the same time, we, we cannot give in to the world's methods I want to comment on that a little bit. To the world, political power is the answer. Political activity is the answer. The Christians go beyond in our world today being concerned about those things to getting wrapped up in those things, making an idol out of those things. Political activity, political power is the answer. The world's problems, that's one of the world's methods. And the world uses lies to accomplish its end. The world uses manipulation to accomplish its goals and to bring about change. We have to avoid all that. How sad it is and what a grief it is to God when His own people look and act and sound no different to the world when it comes to politics and trying to address the problems that exist in government. Listen, it's tragic when professing Christians are so focused on this world and so focused on that methodology and politics and so angry that they post things online that look no different and sound no different than what the world is posting. And they're harsh and critical and cynical and attacking and disrespectful and even vile, just like the world does. Tragic that there are Christians taking up the motto, let's go Brandon. Wearing t-shirts that proclaim it, just like the world does. So vile, so disrespectful, not even giving it a thought. Churches become worldly like this as well. They've made that their mission, focus on political change, opposed to the mission that the Lord has given it. I mean, before politics became such an idol, for a long time now, churches have been guilty adopting the Lord's methodologies just in order to grow, whether it's the, the decades-old church growth movement or the man-centered entertainment in the churches to attract people or consumer-driven market campaigns to try to get more people, more money. I said I could go on and on, and I can't today. I'm just telling you the right answer to all these examples of worldliness is no. We must stay in the world and engage with it, but we cannot be like the world. Even pastors are posting things 
that are just like the world. We need the Lord's help and protection in this challenge, but hey, we have a responsibility in this. We have a responsibility to stay on guard. Paul writes in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's the bottom line. We will never impact this world by being like the world. We will only impact it and be pleasing to the Lord by being different from it. Don't even speak in terms of redeeming the culture. That was a catchphrase for many years ago. It's still around. We're not interested in redeeming the culture. The Bible never even speaks that way. It calls it this present evil age. Instead, Scripture tells us we go into the world and we preach the gospel to seek to rescue sinners out of this culture through the gospel. And when that happens, they're no longer part of this culture. They're part of a new culture, the Lord's culture, the true church's culture. We're not to partner with the world. We're not to collaborate with the world or collaborate with darkness. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? People tend to only apply it to marriage. Don't marry an unbeliever. Well, it can have an application there, but in every category, we don't partner with worldliness, but we do engage with it, the world. And as we do, let's just remember that we are in a war, but it's not a normal war. It's a spiritual war. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood and political parties, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our war. And therefore, we must use the right weapons of warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ by proclaiming truth. In other words, our weapons are the preaching of the word and prayer and evangelism and living holy lives in this spiritual war because ultimately the war ends up actually being a mission to proclaim the gospel. I needed all this myself to think about this this week. I needed to think about this, that that there's a reason, and others before me have preached it, there's a reason God doesn't just save us and take us to heaven. I mean, there's Christian cul-de-sacs there. There's Christian apartment buildings. I mean, you know, mansions and all that. It's going to be great. So why didn't he just save us and poof? You know, the rapture going on all the time, you know. No, he leaves us here because there's something we can still do here that we can't do in heaven. Let's proclaim the gospel. Romans 10, 13 and 14. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That's why it burdens my heart so much for pastors and preachers to get so caught up in politics. 
and to post things that have nothing to do with the gospel. How are they going to hear without a preacher? 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Post that. Listen, let's commit ourselves to this balance that I've tried to articulate this morning. Avoiding worldliness. But as we stay engaged with the world in order to fulfill our true mission. Let's pray. Father, we are so easily influenced to think wrongly about things. We get so emotionally deceived because we're, our thinking is deceived. So, Lord, we confess that we need this reset from time to time to be reminded who you are and who we are while we're here. So, Lord, help us to stay faithful. But we do pray for the same thing, that you would keep us from straying, keep us from fostering disunity. Lord, we get weary in all this. Keep us from despair. Help us to know you, the joy of the Lord. But definitely, Lord, please protect us from worldliness. Father, I do pray for anyone here who's never come to Christ as Lord and Savior. May you help them understand that they are of the world. That's just who they are. And they're destined for a judgment because you are a holy God who holds men accountable and women accountable for their sin. Lord, may they come to the end of themselves to cry out for mercy. Lord, please forgive me. I want to know and serve you. In our Savior's name we pray, amen.